to the Santa Cruz Baptist Podcast. I'm Drew Cunningham, and I'm here with Tyler Hurst. And we are discussing Daniel 10 and 11 today. Um, not quite the mega bonus podcast that we did a couple weeks ago with three chapters, but <laughs> we are going to try to hit two chapters. So, Tyler, these are two chapters, two sermons that, that you preached. Um, can you just kind of give us a, a general 30,000-foot overview of what these chapters are about and what are some things you hope people walked away with? Yeah, in terms of what they're about, uh, Daniel 10, 11, and 12 tell one story of Daniel's final vision. Uh, and 10, oddly enough, um, breaks sort of protocol and pattern with the previous uh, visions that we've seen in the book of Daniel, and it just gives us uh, what's taking place to Daniel in and around the vision. So uh, an angel or uh, this you know, man in linen shows up to Daniel. Uh, there appears to be a few angels with him. And uh, Daniel gets knocked, Daniel sees him, sees a vision, and gets knocked out by the vision, and then comes to, has a conversation with the man in linen. And that's where chapter 10 ends. And then chapter 11 ends, or chapter 11 begins with segueing into the vision in which we get this massive overview of basically what's going to take place historically uh, in and around God's people over the course of, um, I, I, my numbers might be wrong, but I think it's about 140 years or so uh, that they're getting a view of, uh, going all the way up to what um, in the Apocrypha is called the books of uh, 1, 2, 3, and 4 Maccabees, uh, and potentially depending on some uh, interpretations up to the Roman Empire. So what uh, what are the main things that you hope people walked away with from chapters 10 and 11, respectively? Yeah, so these two chapters are so closely related that what I sort of thought of it as is putting two, um, putting, well, the same same message in a sense, but trying to drill it down deeper with the second sermon. Uh, so the thing I thought about in chapter 10 uh, that I spent a lot of time looking at was the nature of prophecy and the sovereignty of God as it displays this. And so actually one of the clearest places to see this is not necessarily in Daniel, but something that takes place before Daniel and then contemporaneous with Daniel. And that's Ezra 1, 1 through 3 tells us of how Cyrus, who is the king when all this happens, uh, let the Jewish people go back to their homeland. And that is actually, uh, even though Daniel predicted that years a few years before it happened, Isaiah predicted that mm -hmm. um, over 100 years before it happened. And so we see not just Daniel, but also Isaiah giving us these big views of what takes place. Um, in Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, uh, you even get the name Cyrus used. And mm -hmm. so it's not just... I mean, I was talking to somebody after the service and saying, like, you know, it's it's not just that um, that God gave generic events. He named the specific person who would do this. Exactly. And so one of the things I wanted us to see in that is uh, the sovereignty of God and just how much we can trust God. I mean, he doesn't get any of this stuff wrong, and he's obviously planned and prepared it and orchestrated it such that it'll happen exactly to his design. And as we read the New Testament, we find out his design is for his glory and our good, the good of the people who love him. Uh, so that was one of the 
big things that I wanted to take away at the beginning of the book of Daniel, and I sort of carried that through in or in the beginning of the, Daniel 10, I carried that through into Daniel 11 by talking about as Daniel 11 unpacks this giant prophecy of what we now think of as history, but for Daniel is uh, decades and even a century in the future, uh, I wanted to show how Daniel gets uh, really troubled and even knocked out by the visions he has of the future. And so he can encounter the providence of God, uh, but it's not necessarily a pleasant truth for him, and it's something that needs to get drilled down deeper into him each time he encounters it. And in a sense, he is able to live the rest of his life as the faithful Daniel we meet throughout the book of Daniel because he grapples with this truth again and again and gets it down into him in deeper and deeper ways. Yeah, there's a, a book that's one of my favorites. It's called Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. And in talking about God's sovereignty, he says this. Um, he says, We've heard the story. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the war was lost. Then he goes on and he says, I remember my distress when I heard that Bill Vukovic, the greatest car driver of his era, was killed in a crash in the Indianapolis 500. The cause was later isolated in the failure of a cotter pin that cost 10 cents. Bill Vukovic had amazing control of race cars. He was a magnificent driver. However, he was not sovereign. A part worth only a dime cost him his life. God doesn't have to worry about 10-cent cotter pins wrecking his plans. There are no maverick molecules running around loose. God is sovereign. God is God. And I think there's so much uh, import to what Sproul's talking about there in, mm -hmm. in what you just said, that if God is able to predict these things uh, hundreds of years in advance, uh, if there's any maverick molecules in the universe, the whole thing could come crashing down and mm -hmm. the prophecy could not be fulfilled. Right. And there is not a single prophecy in all of Scripture that wasn't actually fulfilled. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that's... Um, we're seeing these big-picture prophecies that come to pass, but realizing and, and just thinking a, a level deeper than that, uh, of thinking all that had to pass... Mm -hmm for Cyrus to be born, mm -hmm. uh, for Cyrus to right. become king. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, there, there's so many things that could have gone differently in tiny, tiny little ways, those maverick molecules mm -hmm. that could have led to that prophecy not being fulfilled. Mm -hmm. um, but God is sovereign over it all. And I think that's just, just mind-blowing to think about, that Isaiah prophesies it, it happens, and mm -hmm. um, God is proved sovereign in that act. Yeah, and you see the same thing in Daniel 11, where you have, even down to the point of, in Daniel 11, um, in 6 through 8, there's this prophecy given that's sort of unusual. It, it talks about uh, a girl being given to a king in marriage, and uh, but her arm won't last, and then his arm won't last, and it's talking about their authority, uh, their power. And it just seems like this really odd thing. And then you find out, as you study history, that this very likely refers to the marriage of Bernice, uh, a daughter of Ptolemy II, uh, to a Seleucid prince in order to reunite part of Alexander the Great's empire. And then uh, because 
the prince that she married was already married. His first wife poisons him and then wins authority or wins kind of favor with the, uh, the people who don't want now this Ptolemy Mm -hmm. uh, daughter to be the one who's like in charge of the kingdom. So then they sell her out to the first wife and the first wife kills her and kills her son, who's supposed to be the heir to reunite the kingdom. And all of that has to take place in order for Antiochus the fourth to come to the throne. Who's going to be the main focal point of Daniel eight of Daniel 11 parts of it. And is going to trigger the Maccabean revolt and all this stuff that sets up the table for Jesus to come in the new Testament. So, so if any of that Mm -hmm. goes slightly different, Mm -hmm. you've got the butterfly effect and nothing else from that point forge Mm -hmm. is the same. Right. So, I mean, um, some of my background is actually in studying, um, bioethics. And so one of the things that I came across when I was working in that field was, uh, that one fourth of women, uh, struggle with infertility. So all it takes for that plan to go awry is for Bernice to be in that one-fourth of women. Hmm. And she doesn't have a baby that can't be the heir of the kingdom, and they got to come up with another plan, and that history goes a completely different way. Right. Or all it takes is for uh, Alexander's empire to be given to Alexander's son or advisor, and then it doesn't get divided between four generals, which causes this giant rivalry, and it goes a different way. Mm-hmm. But it, you, at every point, you have these odd details that have to fall right into place, and they do. And the thing I wanted to get across in Daniel 11 when I was teaching that chapter is that I could have sat up there and walked through this text, each of the 45 verses, verse by verse, and shown, here's what happened. Here's how this is fulfilled in history until, well, with the exception of when you get down to 35, where I think it's talking about the Antichrist, but could have gone through all of those verses, shown where they're fulfilled in history. And that might not be at all transformative, just be helpful information or interesting tidbits that kind of sit on the top of people's minds uh, and don't do anything. And so what I wanted us to think about is like, how do we take just facts or information and make them true knowledge that affects the way we live? So shifting gears a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, but not unassociated to Mm -hmm. God's sovereignty in this world. Mm -hmm. Um, Specifically in chapter 10, we see that God sovereignly is involved in his world. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to see that again next week in in chapter 12. But one of the ways that he is involved in his world is through the medium of angels. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Like what's, angels aren't something we talk about every day. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do we learn about angels in this text and do angels function today? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a couple of different things that take place in Daniel chapter 10. You have this man in linen, and then you have two different references to one like a son of man. Um, And what it seems like is that there's this man in linen who's one figure with two angels with him. Uh, Now, one of the things I said in in the sermon that I taught was that uh, there's a high likelihood though I'm willing to be convinced otherwise of this, but that the man in linen is the pre-incarnate Christ. Yeah, so, very much seems so to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. So if we're if we're talking about angels, let's put the man on linen, man in linen in the back burner, uh, because I'm not entirely sure that he's an angel. But then we have these other two guys, uh, and then one of them is going to make reference at the end of Daniel 10, at beginning of Daniel 11, at, to Michael, um, who appears to be an archangel. Now, a couple of the things that we can figure out from this text and from other texts is that we see that angels are part of God's creation, uh, that they are uh, spiritual beings, 
that they can take different forms because um, uh, they're not constrained by a body like you and I are, uh, that time and space is somewhat relative to them. They seem to be able to move very quickly, but at other times get caught in a certain place. Mm-hmm. So um, to go back to the man in linen, he says that he meant to come to Daniel earlier, but got held up by the prince of Persia. So he gets caught somewhere away from Daniel fighting this other uh, spiritual entity. Uh, so you have things like that, but probably one of the most interesting things we see in this text in particular is the reference to Michael as being the one who defends God's people mm-hmm. or the one who fights for Israel. So you have essentially in the midst of uh, what's taking place in Daniel is you regularly have Daniel seeing some kind of conflict between nations. Uh, so you have him see the con- the succession of Babylon to Persia uh, on into Greece and Rome. You have him see those two combat each other in um, uh, Daniel 7, the vision, and Daniel 8, especially where you have the ram that represents Medo-Persia get steamrolled by this goat represented by Greece. And so you have these nations in conflict, uh, and their conflicts impact the people of God. And it seems like God is saying, hey, Daniel, I am protecting my people with these other spiritual forces. And there mm-hmm. are, in fact, different spiritual forces surrounding uh, and potentially even influencing nations like Persia and Babylon and Greece. So is, uh, I guess, how, as Christians, how mm-hmm. should we think about angels today and mm-hmm. um, these Angels like Michael, Gabriel, um, are they still defending God's people as we speak, or is this just something in the Old Testament? I see nothing in Scripture to tell me that they have stopped defending God's people. Uh, And in fact, there's good reason to believe um, from, say, Revelation 12, uh, that Michael at least is still active defending God's people. Uh, So one of the things that we see is um, also is a Jude 6, Jude verse 6, uh, where you have Michael uh, fighting with, um, I believe it actually says Satan, mm-hmm. over Jude the body. Nine. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jude 9, that's what it is, uh, over the body of Moses. And so in all three of these instances, you have uh, Michael particularly fighting for God's people in some way, shape, or form. He's mm-hmm. fighting to defend the body of Moses. Uh, he's told that he'll be active uh, to defend um, to defend the Israelites during the reign of Antiochus. Uh, and you have him in Revelation 12 actually fighting against the dragon, Satan himself. Um, so it does seem to me that they they are still active. Uh, and it seems to me that um, this should be encouraging to us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, to know that in spiritual warfare that... I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the the phrase spiritual warfare, my mind immediately goes to the evil side of things, Mm -hmm. that we're being attacked by evil, and that's what spiritual warfare is. But there's another element to spiritual warfare in that there are angels who Mm -hmm. are are fighting for Christ and his people. Um, And so that's absolutely encouraging to know that this isn't just an Old Testament thing, that they're Mm -hmm. around Um, There's another passage that I just looked up. Um, I'll just read it for us. Hebrews 13.2. That's pretty interesting. It says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Mm -hmm. So again, there's there's another text that 
seems to insinuate that angels are still very much present in, mm-hmm. in everyday life here. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one's a little different. There doesn't seem to be a uh, defense that's necessarily happening, but um, right. it's that someone p- that we would show hospitality to. Yeah, and that probably... Re- relates to the different roles that angels take mm-hmm. on. So in our in the text in Daniel, we primarily see angels as uh, defense because of the references to Michael. Right. Um, angel, actually, where we get the word, our English word for it comes from angelos, which means messenger, messenger. in the Greek. Mm-hmm. And so one of the primary places where you see angels operating in the Bible is actually operating to bring God's message or to bring God's word mm-hmm. to a particular people or a particular person. That might even be what's taking place here as if the man in linen is an angel, he's one bringing the truth, the the story God is trying to tell Daniel to Daniel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he arrives with coinciding with the vision. As well, you have uh, cherubim and seraphim who are angels which... Um, Well, no, those are two different. Uh, You have cherubim who are placed to to guard uh, the entrance to um, the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have some kind of guardian angel, but that seems more geographically located than uh, people located. So it seems like you have maybe archangels that might be in charge of guarding God's people, and you have cherubim angels that might be in charge of, say, guarding God's things. Mm -hmm. Hence the cherubim on the curtain uh, in the um, Holy of Holies. Mm Mm-hmm. As well, you have, uh, so the seraphim are worshiping angels. They only pop up, I believe, once in Scripture in the book of Isaiah, and they're referenced as the one singing holy, holy, holy to God. Uh, So you have different kind of groups of angels that are given different tasks. So it's possible even that there are types of angels we don't know about whose job it is to wander around to see if we show them hospitality. Yeah. (laughs) So... Uh, again, uh, this, this isn't a, a main part of, mm-hmm. of the text or a main point of your sermon, but uh, it is fascinating to think about that this that these these angels exist in mm-hmm. different uh, roles in our world, and that I think most importantly, we're just reminded that we do live in a spiritual realm. Yeah, uh, it's so easy to live life and think that we live in just a material realm, but. There are forces of evil, and there are forces of good uh, that are, are doing battle, so to speak, mm-hmm. all around us constantly. Well, I think it's it's sort of odd because we oscillate back and forth. It's like we can only focus on either the spiritual or the physical at one time. Mm-hmm. So, so frequently in our world, we... Um, we think about the physical more than the spiritual, and we sort of discount the spiritual, like you just said, um, with with not making reference to angels. Uh, and I mean, I think as well, things that Scripture says that we sort of think of as kids' stories tend to make it so we discount uh, the spiritual realm. One thing that stands out to me there is um, I know a ton of kids who, when they go through something like vacation Bible school, uh, they memorize Ephesians 6 in the armor of God, but I know very few adults who think frequently about that passage. And I think that's really practical for us because I don't think it's a mistake that Ephesians 6, the longest passage on what people are supposed to do in the midst of spiritual warfare, follows Ephesians 5, which is one of the most intense passages on marriage. And so it seems to me that Paul is pairing those two things together after talking about marriage, after talking about husbands and wives, and then he tells you like, hey, by the way, you should be aware of spiritual warfare because that might come into your marriage. And so we, in in certain senses, we as adults tend to discount the spiritual, but then in other ways we discount the physical. And so 
Um, I remember reading in screw tape letters, uh, C.S. Lewis has puts in the demon's mouth, uh, the notion that you can really hinder somebody's spiritual growth if you make them think that their body is unimportant. Mm -hmm. And so don't think it's important to ever kneel to pray or to stand when receiving forgiveness or to do. And he kind of goes through these, like, if you can disconnect these body postures from him, uh, then you've won a great battle. And it's because we, we forget that we're the technical, the, um, technical big fancy term is psychosomatic unity, that we are psycho mind, soul, self, and soma body put together in one thing. And Mm -hmm. both of those are really important. And both of those God wants to minister to. Mm -hmm. And so we have a difficult time holding those two realities uh, simultaneously. That's good. So big picture, Daniel has this vision. Mm -hmm. Um, He's reminded um, that he's beloved by God again. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love that section. Um, Why do you think that point in particular is there in scripture. Well, in my sermon, I drew out how, uh, that's, that's, I think where you see the gospel. Yeah. Verse, verse 10 of chapter 10. Yeah. Man greatly loved. Yeah. And you get this encouragement, um, as well. You have, Oh man, greatly loved fear, not peace be with you. Be strong and courageous. Uh, and so I, I think you see in that in the gospel, and that's how I closed my sermon on Daniel 10, was talking about how none of those things can be said if it's not for, as Romans 5 puts it, uh, sorry, I don't, it might not be Romans 5, but it's Romans, uh, overlooking past sins, uh, looking towards the cross. And so God overlooks the sins of the past, uh, looking at Jesus. And so be, because of Christ coming, and again, God's sovereignty, God knowing Christ is going to come, God orchestrating history so that Mm -hmm. Christ will come, knowing all of that, then Daniel can be in the presence of the man in linen. Mm -hmm. Daniel can can encounter all of these things and not fear God uh, in a... uh, mortifying way that would kill him, not be at war with God, instead be peaceful and actually have courage in the presence of God because Christ is going to pay for his sins. Yeah, that's uh, we don't have to to go down this rabbit hole, but mm -hmm. that sure shoots a hole in in the idea of open theism. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's probably a can of worms (laughs) we don't want to open up. (laughs) But yeah, there's there's not a lot to that um, when you look at, I mean... Basically, the entire book of Daniel is going to discount anything that thinks, uh, anything that says that God either doesn't know the future, or that God is playing some kind of guessing game, or that God can't orchestrate the future. Um, as well, you asked particularly why I think he calls him greatly loved, and I think it's because if you were in a place like Daniel, um, you might begin to question why you get these visions. One thing that stood out to me that I I mentioned in both the Daniel 10, Daniel 11 sermon is Daniel has these really negatively visceral reactions to each of the visions he gets, and Mm -hmm. the reaction gets worse the clearer the vision is. Mm -hmm. And I think you could imagine a point in which Daniel says something like, why do I keep on getting these? Like, you know, they turn my stomach over. I see these violent things. I see like trouble coming for our people. And, you know, I think he kind of has to settle into the understanding that hard times are coming, but these hard times will produce God's glory and God and God's good for God's people. And it's a helpful reminder to him, right as he's about to get the clearest vision he gets in the entire book that, Hey, I'm coming to you not to give you this vision as a punishment, 
but because you're greatly loved. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> well, uh, any last things you want to comment on either of these chapters before we go? I mean, I just think um, it is so important to get these truths drilled down into us. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time on a sort of philosophical digression in, in Daniel 11 talking about uh, how we need to really know them and not rather disconnect our heart and mind, which we so commonly do, um, but rather we need to like fuse them together and understand that the Bible's not just full of information, it's full of things that are supposed to transform us. And so we need to get these truths into us, and I would advocate recount our own uh, conversion stories and think about the steps involved, like you said with Cyrus, what it would take to get Cyrus on the scene, what did it take to get you on the scene, and what did it take to get you in front of somebody to share the gospel with you? And as you recount that and think about it, meditate on God's sovereignty and moving all of those pieces together mm-hmm. such that you could encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, that he has gone to such great lengths to make sure that you heard and believed the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, outside of the great length that he went to send his own son to die for us, mm-hmm. uh, the center of, of the gospel. Um, just, yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing to think about. Yeah. Um, since we opened the can of worms and didn't didn't chase it, um, <laughs> one resource that I'd recommend is a book by Bruce A. Ware, and it's called "Their God Is Too Small," um, and it's on or it's refuting open theism. Um, and so, I, I just think that's um, a really helpful thing to think about in terms of what you said in Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um, open theism, or, or this idea that God doesn't really know the future um, in many ways, uh, that the future is kind of open to him um, instead of him being sovereign. Um, yeah, that, that just doesn't work mm-hmm. when you read through Daniel. Um, God is, is very in control of current events mm-hmm. and future events um, and knows explicitly what's going to happen and reveals these things to Daniel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have the hindsight of looking back at Daniel and being like, all of those things actually happened. Yeah. Um, and so I just think that gives us such great confidence in God. Um, and that's, that's kind of Bruce Ware's, one of his theses in there is that open theism actually undermines confidence mm-hmm. in God. Yeah. And so that's just one thing that I would end with. Um, in Daniel, uh, we're meant to have confidence in God that mm-hmm. he can promote Daniel and his friends to high places. Mm-hmm. He can save them um, from, from fiery furnaces. He can save Daniel from the mouth of, of lions, um, and he can predict the future um, you know, to, to um, a specific detail mm-hmm. of a specific named king and what would happen with and through that king. And, and that's just mm-hmm. kind of amazing to think about. Yeah, and you can go big and small with that throughout all of Scripture. I mean, that's one of the things when we talk about God's sovereignty. Um, God's sovereignty, the thing that convinced me of it was seeing the Bible as a whole story. Uh, Because you get the big picture of these predictions, but you also get things like the book of Jonah, I think is an interesting one in terms of a study in God's sovereignty, where God appoints a whale to mm-hmm. go and, or a fish to go and swallow Jonah. And then he appoints... A wind. A, yeah, a wind. And he appoints uh, a... Uh, plant to grow up and give him shade. Then he appoints a worm to eat the plant. And mm-hmm. it's just, I mean, you think of about God picking out that worm is going to kill this plant. Uh, it's just ab- absolutely mind blowing. Um, 
Uh, in terms of resources, I would recommend we spent a bit of time talking about angels. There's so much interesting stuff out there. If you guys wanted to learn more, I would recommend a book titled Against the Darkness, written by Graham Cole. Uh, and it's in um, a theology series put out by Crossway called The Foundations of Evangelical Theology. Uh, I've read a few in this series. They're all great. This one's on the doctrine of angels, Satan, and demons. Awesome. Well, with that, we will wrap it up, and we will see you back here again next week. Have a good